from the beautiful West 7th neighborhood of St. Paul, Minnesota, you're listening to the Capital City Podcast. I have been meeting uh, a number of people, meeting with a number of people who are at a crossroads in their life, um, a fork in the road, sort of a, a wrestling with God moment. And it keeps reminding me of the story of Jacob. Now, the story of Jacob is one of the most mystical, strangest, eeriest stories in the Bible. It's probably one of the most thought about and one of the most written about, preached on uh, in history. Um, a lot of the church fathers were obsessed with it. Shakespeare was obsessed with it. It's actually the, the prime motivator in a lot of his characters is the story of Jacob and Esau and this, this difficulty they had. Uh, so I'll tell you the story. So um, we're going to be doing a bit of catching up in order to get to what I'm speaking on today. So Jacob's story begins with a twin birth. And from his very first moment in life, he is branded as a cheat. He's branded as a stealer of blessing. Do you ever feel like you were branded a certain way before you even had a choice? Like before you even really came of age, people already had you pegged for a certain characteristic. He was branded as a cheat. So Esau, his brother, twin brother, was born first. And in Hebrew society, it was a very big deal to be born first. But instead of Jacob coming a few minutes later, as normally happens with twins, the story is that uh, Jacob came out directly behind Esau with his hand on his ankle, on Esau's ankle. And so this was understood. We don't think like this anymore, but this was interpreted at the time to be Jacob, the younger of the two twins, trying to hold back his brother, trying to grab him by the ankle, pull him back in the womb and switch spots so that he could be first and inherit the blessing. Because, right, Abraham got the, this blessing that someday all nations would be blessed in his line passed down to Isaac, and then it would pass down to Isaac's son. And so there was this understanding that Jacob was trying to steal the blessing. Now, we kind of scoff at this thing today. We're like, well, they're babies. You know, that's not how it works. But actually, in their case, the notion that the younger Jacob would spend his whole life trying to, you know, overcome the first through kind of shady means ended up being true. Uh, so there's a really important scene early in their story that we're not going to go into fully, but just as a bit of background for today, um, Jacob steals Esau's birthright. And we'll explain what this is in a second. So Jacob tricks his aging father Isaac into giving him the family blessing, um, the charge to continue this call that was given to Abraham and Isaac. And now to us, it kind of seems silly. We're like, well, we know who the oldest is. Yeah, he might have tricked him, but like, can't we just like call it the right way and, and do it as it should be? Um, but it's sort of, we do the same thing. It's sort of like these stories you hear of con artists who deceive the elderly into changing their will at the last moment so that the con artist inherits the whole family's, you know, uh, accumulated wealth instead of their own children. Another family, another culture might think we're ridiculous for even allowing this loophole, but it's just, it's how it is that we know who the children are and who should rightly, you know, get any, you know, any wealth from the parents, but we follow signed documents, right? We, like, we will absolutely follow a signed will just like they followed the blessing. It was something that was irrevocable. Um, so this, this, bless, this blessing, once it was given, even under false pretenses, it was gone. You couldn't redo the blessing. You couldn't take it back. Once it was given, you got no second chances. So Jacob acquires the name he cheats or he, dece he deceives, which sounds just like Jacob in Hebrew. Um, and that, it, yeah, it's a pun on his name. So the, the Hebrew for 
grabber of the heel or to grab the heel and also he cheats sound almost the same as Jacob. So this is all kind of a pun on his name. In fact, some people think he was not named Jacob, that a lot of the biblical characters had other names, but they were sort of named after their characteristic, and that's the one that survived down to us. So his name is he cheats or he deceives, and that's sort of, that's what we remember him as, as Jacob. Is, is Jacob Harrison here today? No. Uh, <laughs> it's a great name now. Um, all right, so he, uh, he goes about cheating and conniving his way through a good bit of his life, And he gets played here and there, but for the most part, he always ends up on top of any situation, and he's always uh, conniving his way to victory. It's rarely honorable, but he often finds his way to a a victory, to a win. Uh, And after cheating Esau out of his blessing, Esau is going to kill him. So Jacob flees from the promised land. And even though he stole this blessing, even though he sort of conned the will to be changed, God honors that blessing because he wasn't caught off guard, right? God knew from the beginning of time, from before he created the world, he knew that this conniving little brother would end up being the one that carried the blessing. It's sort of one more example in this story of this underdog people, the people of Israel, the people of Jacob, the Jews. Uh, They survive still to this day, the Jewish people today are the only country in the world that is still on its same plot of land, speaking the same language, and worshiping the same God as 3,000 years ago. There are some countries in, in East Asia that are close to that, but they're not worshiping the same God. And so the Jews are the only people on earth that fit this description. And it's from this underdog people that Jesus came, a direct descendant of Jacob. All right, so God tells Jacob that he and his descendants will inherit this promised land, the land of Canaan, and that a blessing to all of the families of the earth will come through his line and not Esau's. So. He sort of uh, takes the blessing and then he flees and he builds a family. He becomes wealthy in a a distant country. And after quite some time, God tells him to return home because you can't inherit the promises. You can't inhabit the promised land if you're in flight, right? You have to return home at some point and claim this blessing. But the problem is Esau lives back home. And so today's passage is where we're picking up at this rocky point where after decades, Jacob is about to see Esau again for the first time in a very long time. So Jacob's going back to the promised land and Esau hears about it and he starts to uh, approach Jacob with an army of 400 men. Or it's 400 men, which sounds like an army, but Jacob doesn't know for sure. So Jacob has neither the strength nor the manpower and he prays to God for help and for deliverance. He's like, hey, you said that I'm going to be the one carrying on this blessing. You, you, need, you need to help me here. It's not looking for good for Jacob, though. So he splits his overall camp, his party, in two, hoping that at least one half will make it out alive while Esau demolishes the other half. So he, he splits his children in two, thinking maybe at least my line will continue because Esau will have mercy. Once he slaughters one half, he'll have mercy on the other. He sends a bunch of wealth ahead of him, animals offering gifts. He's trying to placate Esau and be like, hey, you know, I mean peace. It's been a long time. Here's like tons of just gifts and wealth. Um, And then finally, it's the night before he knows Esau. You know, he has messengers going back and forth. So he knows Esau's close. And it's the night before he's to meet him. And he sends everybody away. He just needs to be alone in a place of nature. Kind of reminds me of Jesus in the garden. He wants to be alone and he wants to pray to God and beg so to speak so he's alone at the river he's in he's on one side 
and on the other side is the promised land. So he is, on one side is where he's come from and where he's fled from, and he's at a, a, a small river looking into the promised land. He's, uh, now he's alone. He left the promised land with only a staff in his hand, and he cheated his way basically to this great wealth. And now facing death on this worst night of his life, he's right back where he started, at the gate, so to speak, of the promised land with only a staff in his hand. He's facing the sins of his past and waiting for what might be at the end. He's questioning, should he return to the land of his fleeing? Should he say, you know, I, I don't think I'm going to make it out of this? Or should he, should he press on and go into the promised land? Should he keep lying and cheating and go back to where he fled? Or should he press forward? And what follows is one of the most eerie, hair-raising stories in the entire Bible. So a figure appears, and we don't know who he is yet. Can't see his face. It's dark out. It's night. So here Jacob is. He's got this past to deal with, and he can't enter into the promised land as Jacob the deceiver. This figure approaches him and begins to grapple with him, or begins to wrestle with him. Uh, Jacob has never been overpowered in his life, and he's not about to now, but it seems that this figure could end him whenever it wants, but it chooses not to. And this story, man, read it. It's, it's, in, uh, it's in Genesis 32. It's like a mystery for the ages. Uh, Jacob thinks of him as a man when they start, but it becomes clear quickly that this is either a messenger or rather the messenger, capital letters, of the Lord. It could be an angel. A lot of the early church thought this was Jesus Christ in pre-incarnate form. So they're grappling, they're, they're fighting. It's not a fight to the death, but it's a wrestling match for submission. It's a contest of will, and it goes all night. Uh, show of hands, this is Minnesota, kind of a wrestling state. Does anyone rest, did anyone wrestle here in high school? Anyone? What does that, I guess, what does that say? Okay, so one, I was going to say, what does that say about Capital City? We have no wrestlers here. <laughs> Says probably a lot about me. Uh, <laughs> Um, yeah, so I think wrestling matches, if I'm not mistaken, they go for, is it six minutes at the high school level or nine? And it's kind of understood that at least at the high school level that the, um, the physical demands and the practice, the, the, the training schedule for wrestling tends to be harder than any other Minnesota sport. You know, people always debate this at the lunch table, I remember. Um, but it's kind of understood that wrestling is the hardest. And you do all of that crazy training for a six-minute grappling session, six-minute fight. And these guys are wrestling all night long. I mean, we're talking like puke-worthy exertion here. Uh, and they wrestle till dawn breaks. And it says, when the man, this mysterious man, uh, saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. So it's like, wait, they've been wrestling all night, and then this mysterious figure just touches Jacob's hip, and the thing gets thrown out of socket? Like, that's a crazy enemy that you're fighting. Um, so clearly a being with that kind of power could have ended the fight whenever he wanted to, but he didn't. And it's about here that Jacob starts to realize this is not a man, but God or the angel of God or a messenger sent from God. So he puts the hip out of its socket. And then uh, the angel says, or this sort of figure, this, this angelic figure says, let me go for the day has broken. And a lot of people have said, well, why would the angel, if it's clearly in power here, why would the angel say, let me go? And if you read between the lines, there's a few different takes on this, but if you read between the lines, the angel says, let me go, because it doesn't want Jacob to see its face. This is a theme throughout the Old Testament, that when the sent one, whether God visits you or the messenger of the Lord visits you, it's, it's so great and so glorious and so terrifying that if a human were to see it, 
they would die. That's why like, Moses has to have a veil on, and these people that see God have to have a kind of veil on. And so the angel is going to leave because the sun is about to come out and doesn't want Jacob to be destroyed just by the sight of its glory. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So if you read the Old Testament, it's clear. Jacob is sort of like, it's not supernatural, but he's like the closest thing outside of Samson to like a Hercules, extremely strong. There's a few stories where he's just crazy strong. So here he is like wrestling with this guy all night. And then this angel is like, I need to leave. And he says, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So it's not like supernatural strength. This angel could have ended him whenever he wanted. But Jacob is not someone to be messed with. Sort of the strongest that you can come by in normal humanity. Um, And also it's clear here when he asks this figure for a blessing that he recognizes this figure is his superior. So you don't ask a blessing from an inferior. Um, Even though this being has allowed Jacob in a sense to win or to not be defeated, Jacob has no misgivings about his inferiority to this being. So Jacob asks him for a blessing. Jacob earlier in his life got his first blessing by basically pulling a fast one over his going blind, you know, father. He's done that with his life. He's, uh, he's, He's done now owing his success to cheating in the past, to shoddy behavior. He wants the real thing now. And so he clings to God. He clings to this messenger and he won't give up. He leaves everything behind and he wrestles for this, the, the will, the way of this messenger and says, give me a blessing. It's, it's weird in our culture, but this is, this is standard Old Testament stuff to part and to give a blessing. So then the angel asks him his name and Jacob responds, Jacob, which is like saying he cheats. Like that's what it sounds like when he says Jacob to a Hebrew ear. Now the angel already knows his name, but he needs to humble him and sort of make Jacob declare his identity, make him declare his namesake again, because it's essentially his past, right? What is your name? Who are you? What is your identity? He cheats. That's what he's making Jacob doing. He's saying, who are you? And he's saying, I cheat. I'm the deceiver. I'm the shoddy one who, who, who gets what he doesn't have coming to him by deception. So the angel makes him declare his own name, but then he renames him. The angel says, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and men and have prevailed. So the meaning of Israel, it sounds like struggling with God, but the meaning is God rules. So like Hebrews love puns. It sounds like to wrestle with God or struggling with God, but it means El rules. So like El Israel, El rules. Uh, So his whole life he was called, he deceives and he cheats. And now he's been given this new name And I I want to encourage you that God is in the business of giving new names. He does this all throughout the Bible, and he does it today, and he will do it with us someday. Now Jacob is no longer he who cheats, but God is the one who rules. He struggled with God, and in the end, God rules. So Jacob asks him this figure. He says, please tell me your name. And in the same response the angels always give in the Bible, uh, he said, why is it that you ask my name? And then it cuts off. Normally you get a longer account. And this is just sort of a, a, a shorthand. Normally the angels will say, why do you ask my name? For don't you know it's too glorious for you? Sort of like, don't dare ask my name because if I tell you, you will end right here. And so he just, he gives the same shorthand answer. He says, why is it that you ask my name? And then it cuts off. And the understanding is if I tell you, you'll die. Um, and there he blessed him. 
So Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, yet my life has been delivered. So again, he knows this, that if you see God, if you see the sent one of the Lord, you die. But here he had started to see the face in the morning dawn before he let this figure go, and he didn't die. So Jacob's whole life, he's called He Cheats, but then God has given him a new name. Do you ever feel like you are looking for a new name, a new identity? Modern Americans were big on identity, right? He called Jacob to become Israel, but he didn't just plop it down in front of him. God tells us, he calls us to very hard tasks, to very hard things. They bring risk, they bring shame, and they often bring judgment from your peers. They make us face a past, an identity, a name that we would rather flee from indefinitely. And he meets us at the border of the old life and the new and makes us count the cost. He's not just like, hey, come on in, whatever. He makes us count the cost to look backward at our identity and really consider, do we cross that river or not? And this is counterintuitive to much of the modern church's message. A lot of people are just saying like, hey, you know what, just follow God. You know, Jesus is your boyfriend. Jesus is your pal. Uh, (laughs) But the biblical picture is not this way. You have a picture both of Jesus being both his, his burden is easy and his yoke is light. But more often than not, he says, drop everything. If, if your hand is to the plow, don't look back. Drop everything, leave it all behind and follow him. Houses and countries, jobs, uh, family, money, prestige. He says, drop it all. He demands to be first. And then he grapples with us. And when you're in that spot, when you're at that river crossing, don't flee. Don't turn back but cling to him and insist on the cost of following Jesus. The road is narrow, he warns us, and it's uphill, but insist on walking it and wrestle your way past the obstacles. Take the difficult path. And that's what Jesus does for us. He too stayed up all night in the garden wrestling with God. He said to God, this is one of my favorite verses in scripture. He says, take this cup of suffering from me. He's praying to God like, if, if by any means, take this suffering, because he's, he's looking at the cross, you know, nine hours ahead. He's saying, take this cup of suffering from me, but your will be done. And then he went to the cross. The Bible says, uh, in, the writer of Hebrews says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So he was promised, Jesus was promised the name above all names, but it was not easy. Uh, Many of the church fathers believe this angel to be Jesus himself in his pre-incarnate form, wrestling with Jacob, who would become Israel. Now, he could have won at any point, but this is really interesting. He chose this angel, this Christ, chose to be defeated so that the blessing promised to Jacob would actually go out to Jacob and all of his descendants and someday the descendants of the world. And Jesus would do the same thing 1,700 years later. He had to wrestle with Israel again, but this time it was not with Jacob become, you know, Jacob named Israel. This time it was, it was with Jacob's descendants, the people of Israel, the people of Jacob. And Jesus could have won at any point. Though he was stronger though, he allowed himself to be defeated. He allowed himself to be put through the ringer all night long into the day and hung on a cross, defeated once again, by Israel, but by his own choosing. Jesus laid down his life. Why? 
just like this mysterious angel and why people see Christ here in this story, just like the mysterious angel that was in the defeat of the one sent by God that the blessing came. It was in the defeat of Christ on the cross that he was truly victorious over sin and death. He had the power, and Satan reminded him of this, right? He had the power to call down all the fire from heaven and win, but instead he chose defeat so that the blessing given to Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob and all Israel would instead reach its fullness and extend out to the whole world, to us Gentiles. He had the power to win, but he chose to lose so that all of us could be blessed. The whole world was a cheat. The whole world was a grabber after the heel in the Hebrew, marked for dishonesty. And in the death, resurrection of Christ, the veil was lifted and the whole world beheld the good news of a savior. In the death and resurrection of Christ, we receive a new name. God is in the business of giving us new names, giving you a new name. Do you guys know that in the book of Revelation, it tends to be one of the least read books in the New Testament because it is quite confusing. Maybe someday we'll do a series through it. In the book of Revelation, we are described as having a special and unique name before God. Anyone know this? Revelation 2? Uh, it's the, there's the name your parents gave you, and then there is a special name that God has for you that only he and then someday you will know, and nobody else will know it. Uh, it says, uh, he will give us a white stone, and burned into that stone will be our name that no other creature on earth knows but God the Father and the Son and us. And he says, get this, he says, to the one who is victorious, to the one who conquers, or to the one who endures, think of the wrestling here. I, th I think this is clearly a reference back to Jacob. He's saying, to the one who endures or, or, or is victorious, um, I will give him a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This is clearly a reference back to Jacob and his new name. So it doesn't matter what your past is, what your story is, whether you're the goody two-shoes or if you have been marked out as a cheat and a deceiver your whole life. Whatever your story, cling to him, answer his call even when it's difficult, wrestle with him, and count the cost. When you're at that crisis point, at that river, considering do you go into the land that he's called you to, wrestle with him and, and count the cost of what's ahead of you. And he will give you a new name to enter his promised land. Let me pray to close us. Lord, we thank you for this strange, mysterious, uh, hair-raising text, Lord, about how you will give us a new name and how you worked with Jacob to become Israel. We thank you, Lord, whether it was you or, or a sent one, a messenger, we thank you that you allowed yourself in a way to somehow be defeated so that you would also bless. It's a, it's a weird story for us modern Westerners, Lord. We thank you that we know that you give us a new name, that there is no past that we cannot come back from, and that if we answer your call and are willing to, to leave our past, to, to, to wrestle away from our past, that you will have us, that you will forgive us and welcome us in and give us a new name. We thank you and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is a project of the Capital City Church in the West 7th community of St. Paul, Minnesota. Find us on Instagram at Capital City Church STP or visit our website for more information at capitalcitystpaul.com.